Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We've got today a returning champion guest to collect his challenge coin, Professor <laughs> Harvey K., who is a professor emeritus of democracy and justice at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. He's going to talk to us about his book, The British Marxist Historians. New edition. Um, new edition, which has a foreword by uh, Eric Hobsbawm. Your boy. Your boy. Yeah. One of, one of my, maybe my favorite uh, historian of all time. That's um, right. And he, Hobson, of course, was professor of history at uh, Birkbeck College, University of London, and, you know, sort of a man about town for many decades. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And- he, he not only wrote, wrote the, the, um, the foreword, um, but is one of the five central historians that, uh, that Harvey writes about in the book. That's right. Yes. Um. And so this, you know, it's just a subject uh, I've been interested interested in for for many years, but um, it's also just kind of fascinating as a work of uh, intellectual biography and how um, how people sort of uh, collaborate with each other and how left wing thinkers can influence the broader uh, political discourse. And uh, how society is organized um, around, you know, their peak in the, I don't know, 19, 1950s to maybe the 1970s, thereabouts. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they were extremely influential. And, and, and Hobsbawm, in particular, went on after that to have, a, like, like, Thatcherism took hold in, in Britain in the 1980s, and that was sort of the end of the line for any kind of serious Marxist, you know, uh, influence. Uh, if if you know anything about about Hobsbawm, he sort of accidentally uh, participated in the rise of Tony Blair in the 1990s. That's a different conversation. But after that, he became a real kind of celebrity in Latin America and uh, other parts of the world where you know his book sold millions of copies like almost to his like surprise you know <laughs> yeah but he was a real you know a, a genuine cosmopolitan a guy who spoke spanish english german uh french you know he is familiar and comfortable in all sorts of different contexts and um i think is him and 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 the other the other folks in the EP EP Thompson and others. I mean, H- Harvey actually had a relationship with all of them. And in, in addition yeah. to to studying them, he he and then part of our episode is is his um, you know many stories uh, about what it was like to talk to them about their work and their role in, in yeah. this this movement and and as academics and, and activists, right? Yeah, they were historians, uh, but they were also historical figures, especially Hobsbawm. You know, he had a really profound influence in a lot of in a lot of countries, and um, it's interesting to just get a sort of window into that. Like, what what were they like? You know, that's right. Um, yeah. He was sort of a celebrity in there, <laughs> which which is very baffling to him. If you've read his uh, autobiography, which I have, of course. As a true Stan, (laughs) he died 10 years ago, but uh, there's something about him, you know, he's just is very addictive. And the the whole book is is really interesting 
in how it weaves that intellectual biography with just the biography with, uh, you know, in our conversation, at least Harvey's experience, uh, talking to these academics, um, and then the actual thinking that they did and the way that they influenced how we do history, how we think about history and how we do social theorizing. Uh, so I, I think there's some really important and illuminating insights on offer from these British Marxist historians and from Harvey, uh, coupled with the, the nice kind of, um, textured color that he, that Harvey gives us about their lives and, and his, um, his recounting of his interactions with them and talking to them about their lives and their, and their personal stories. So, you know, as leftists, I think it's important to, to marry, uh, theory, history, and, um, the human. And, and this is, uh, absolutely an episode that, uh, delves into the human, um, and, and, uh, you know, quintessentially Harvey JK fashion, right? Yeah. Yeah, and we we need to uh, to get to it, but I, I uh, finally, as a last comment before we get into the interview, um, I think that the the book specifically, um, in addition to our conversation here, it, it it shows you a picture of Marxism as a serious intellectual uh, uh, foundation, and not as we see it many times today a sort of dogmatic performance quasi religious right? like approach like prophecy like you're attempting to take these sort of like half un- yeah the the half understood like like precepts from marxism as you understand it like the declining rate of profit or labor theory of value did marx really say that like Instead of trying to defend the literal truth of the master, it's, it's, it's taking Marx as a, a, a flexible intellectual framework and, and a foundation that, uh, it's scholarly and intellectual and not dogmatic and yeah. sectarian. It's a way of being in the world and in how you think about the world and how you offer insights into what's come before so that we could learn how to change uh, what is right. And, and, Absolutely. and it's, it's a, it's a great study in the practical, the very opposite of the, the picayune bullshit kind of fights that are about the, the small difference, you know, the small the narcissism of small differences and, um, and instead about real practical ways that these figures change things and, and, you know, an insight into how we could actually think and act differently, which we need to. Right. Yep. But uh, before we get to the interview, real quick, we have to note that this podcast now sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. Um, if you subscribe to the $10 a month tier on Patreon, you can get a, a free digital subscription to the magazine as well as our uh, our premium episodes. $5 a month gets you the premium episodes and our undying gratitude uh, and, where's that? Uh, uh, where's this Patreon? www.leftanchor. Patreon.com slash leftanchor. There it is. Okay. Um, so, uh, but otherwise you can just enjoy the free stuff and let's get into our interview with Harvey K and about British Marxism and history right now. Harvey, uh, welcome back to the show. Um, you've got this book. I have it here. The British Marxist historians, um, 
nice nice cover by the way on this this guy uh so there's two we have two i have both yeah so so i (laughs) i think that 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 would be uh, the idea of british marxist historians like that like that's a lot of qualifiers for an american audience oh nice yes that's the original cover yeah Ah. so so like maybe you could start out with uh who were these guys and and why were are why were you some years ago writing a book about not just British historians but British Marxist historians? Okay. Well, first I want to say that I will eventually get and I'll keep it as brief as I can so that we don't spend the whole night hearing my life in the 1970s. Um perfect. What what's what's really important to understand is that in the book I refer specifically by way of chapters, to five historians. The first one, an economist, but in Britain, it was not unusual for certain kinds of political economists to be very much historically engaged. And that was Maurice Dobb, who's older than the others, in fact. And he was an economist at Cambridge. And you can imagine the milieu, I know you, Ryan, can appreciate this, and Alexi probably too, the milieu in which he was situated during those 30s into the 40s. I mean, you're talking Keynes, and Srafa, and you know, one could go. Was Joan Robinson actually at Cambridge as well? If I'm not mistaken, yeah. right? She it, helped it, it him incredible. write the general theory of employment, interest, and money. Yeah, yeah. And, they were there. and Dobb was the Marxist of this milieu, you might say. Okay, the Bloomsbury Group, right? Was was she? Was he part of that? No, no, definitely not. He was part of the Communist Party. Okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> much much another party. That was another party. Okay, <laughs> and. Th- and so that he's and in many ways he's one of the if let I'll use this term in many ways he's one of three mentors to the group and I'll just sidebar to say there was also a, a woman who's a journalist who was also a member of the Communist Party named Donna Tor. Maurice Dobb influenced them in terms of thinking about history through through political economy and class struggle. Donna Tor shaped their thinking in terms very much of class struggle, but also the to to, to try to rewrite the story of Britain from the bottom up. She, I believe, really was that kind of influence. A third figure who was um, the author of a book that became for many, many years, something of a bestseller, um, A.L. Morton, Leslie Morton. And his thing was he had been a teacher, I believe. What's that famous Summerhill? Was it that school back in the thirties. Anyway, he is part of a more, maybe sort of radical cultural milieu as well, but he wrote a people's history of England, which was an effort before the British Marxists really began their serious scholarly production after the war. But it was an effort to try to tell a, a left bottom up popular version of English history. Um, I, I have so many stories as I, as I came to work on them, but I will not go into the Leslie Morton stuff, at least not, not now. So, but it's Maurice Dobb is one of the five that I treat very directly. He's the only one of the group I did not meet. And it was my fault for not meeting him because I did not realize that when I was doing my work and visiting England, he was still alive. And I had thought he had passed away and utterly ridiculous on my part, really a shame. Anyhow, so, but the, the others who are at the heart of this book, but not the only British Marxist historians, were Rodney Hilton, who became probably the foremost left English scholar on medieval history. Okay. There were a lot, I mean, there were a lot of outstanding medieval historians in England, but, but he was the one who really brought the story of peasants 
and their struggles into British history, English history in particular. Um, the third uh, figure in the group that I talk about is Christopher Hill. And Hill, in many ways, and I talk to people who are familiar at all with these folks, it's always interesting. You know, they're, everyone admires Hobsbawm, who has any appreciation for his work, uh, or E.P. Thompson. But people who are deeply embedded in English historical studies, they really have a fascination for Hill, who basically made the 17th century come to be known as Hill's century in English history. Um, because <laughs> of the way... It's nice to have a, a nice century. Get. Nice get, yeah. Hill. Well done. When, I'd like to have a decade, honestly. Like, like if I could just have Cooper's decade, you know, but <laughs> I'll a take whole a century. Week. I'll take a week, man. <laughs> <laughs> just give me my name day. I want March 17th. Take it from St. Patrick. God damn it. Anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. So, and Christopher Hill, and he really did write about the English Revolution of the 1640s, but, and his work extended all the way from political history well over into cultural history, the history of theater. I mean, it's really in many ways an intellectual history. And he, it was his effort in many ways to build upon the work of a, another famous English writer, R.H. Tawney, who was trying to approach this century of the, the 17th century in England from another perspective without necessarily losing touch with the fact that the Puritan revolution meant something, Okay. But then the, the next historian that I deal with directly in the book is Eric Hobsbawm. And Hobsbawm is, at, again, at the heart of this whole story, but he's a little different in many ways than the others. And I say different in the sense that he grew up in a different kind of milieu. They grew up decidedly in English, in English-situated families, whereas he grew up in a family that was in many ways continental, okay, and he is in Germany as a boy, a teenager, when Hitler and the Nazis are coming to power. And then his family basically, move, he moves with, with members of his family to England. Um, and his, his, he becomes, of all of them, this is, I say this in a favorable way, as in contrast to the way in which Nazis would use it, he is very much a cosmopolitan figure. Yeah. He spoke, he spoke Latin. But not a cosmopolitan elite. Not a cosmopolitan elite, exactly. But he um, he traveled he traveled all around the world in the course of his work. He worked in different languages. He was fascinated by developments in Europe, especially in Italy and France. He also became involved in working on Latin America. But he began, as in many ways, a labor historian. And a sidebar, he also became, under a pseudonym, a very well-known jazz critic. Right. The States yeah. Magazine. Yeah. Yeah. And later with his name on, it, I think they, there was a, there is a publication of his jazz writings. In fact, um, I, remind me to tell a story about Hasbaum and me. Okay. <laughs> and then the sure. last of the, of the group in the book is E.P. Thompson, Edward Palmer Thompson, who, who himself did not want to become a historian, frankly, he told me. I mean, he wanted to be a poet. Both he and his older brother wanted to be poets. Their parents were missionaries, Methodist missionaries in South Asia. His mother, I believe, actually was an American. His father was the English member of the family. Um, and his parents were, were friends of the Indian intellectual Tagore. I think that's how it's pronounced. And then very close to Nehru. So these are the kind of figures who might show up at his home. But this is a home in England. He himself was not 
was not overseas so much. Now, the other critical thing about this is there were other historians who were very much a part of the group who I came to work on later. One is Victor Kiernan, V.G. Kiernan. Um, and then also, to my mind, the sweetest in many ways of the historians. I, he, he practically adopted me as a sort of literary uh, son in the sense that I, he named me as the executor of his literary estate, um, Georges Rudet, who's, who his name was Rude, R-U-D-E. It was a Norwegian name. His father was Norwegian. Um, but when he went to school, he realized the best thing he could do was add an accent on the E and give it a kind of French sound, Rude. Because <laughs> as we all know, the French are not rude. Nice. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, no, That's great. So, but then he had to come back to the group. So this is a group of historians whose work began in the 30s as undergraduates, and although in certain cases maybe had begun graduate studies before the war, but during the war became involved in diverse capacities in the British war effort. So Hobsbawm was in the education service. E.P. Thompson served in the tanks in Italy. Um, Rodney Hilton served in the British army as well. I forget exactly where in, in Europe he, he ended up fighting. Um, Maurice Dodd was, was not drafted. He was, he was older, or, nor did he enlist. Um, George Rude, who I mentioned before, was a bit older, and he served in the fire service in London. Um, Victor Kiernan did not, did not end up in the British army. He ends up, he goes to India early on in the war to teach at a school in Lahore, um, the equivalent of a college in Lahore, um, and spends his time there uh, very actively on the political left. Um, is that a, in Pakistan? Uh, yeah, at the time it was in. Well, that hadn't right, existed right. yet. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 And by, by the way, did you say Hobbsbaum was a tanky? What is it? No, I said Thompson was a tanky. Thompson was, Thompson was a tanky. Okay. And by the way, watch what you say because my father was in the tanks in the Battle of the Bulge. No, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm making a Stalinist joke. My, uh, yeah, no, my, my I, I have a number, it's several great grand uncles who were, who were tank in the, in the, in various tank battalions. Uh, in the Battle of the Bulge and elsewhere. Yeah. Well, if you have any chance of finding out, because it may, may be difficult, my father's in the 11th Armored Division. Hmm. 11th Armored, which did not have the, the right tanks. <laughs> and the Germans just took them apart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's not a it's not a great place you want to be in. But so Well, let me we, just say so after the war, when they returned, Dobb was at Cambridge. Hilton finishes a PhD and secures a position at Birmingham where he spent his career and became a professor of medieval history. Uh, Christopher Hill started at the University of Wales, I believe at Aberyst with a card, if I should remember, but ends up at Oxford for his entire career. He becomes the master of Balliol College, Oxford. And, I'll, and I, it's always interesting. I remember I said to someone, isn't it a shame that... Uh, he was never named a professor. And they said, don't you realize what it means to be the master of an Oxford college? You don't need a professorship, basically. And and that was Christopher. He was also great. He was the first one of the group that I met and the first one who came with his wife, Bridget, who was also a historian, to visit us here in the United States and to speak with my students. But let me go on and just say that um, Hobsbawm returned and he, I believe he went back to Cambridge to finish his degree where he also became friends with someone you, I'm sure, well, maybe, but I hope you've heard of Raymond Williams. Um, and 
when you look at some of their own memoirs, you can tell who they're, they're likely talking to each other in some of that stuff. And then Edward Thompson came back. And um, what's interesting about Thompson is he and his wife, after the war, were committed to building a new Europe, is the best way I can put it, a, a very progressive left kind of Europe. His older brother had served in something called Special Operations Europe. These were the guys who had been, who volunteered to parachute in and work with the resistance forces around the continent. And he was killed. He was captured and, and executed. And it's a whole story that I could get into another time with you guys. But Edward came back and he wanted, in many ways, he wanted to honor his brother's memory. He, he just idolized his brother. And his brother had been serving in the Balkans with partisans. So after the war, he and Dorothy Thompson, another prominent historian, and had I worked on the women of the group, which I did not at the time, she would be central to that effort. She and I became friends. Um, they went to Yugoslavia as part of a volunteer brigade to help build a railway in Yugoslavia. And then when he came back, he ended up working in something which we don't have in this country. It was like a adult education, worker education sort of um, outreach kind of thing up in uh, Yorkshire and began a writing career as well as a teaching career. And later he ends up having taking a, a year here or there in the United States, but he held a position at Warwick University, which he gave up basically for both political and intellectual reasons. And he spent most of his time as an activist he had been active in the campaign for nuclear disarmament, and he became a co-founder and a leading voice of the European nuclear disarmament movement during the 1980s against the, the Americans placing more missiles in Europe. But he was decidedly a neutral in that regard because he he actually has some difficulty with East European dissidents who actually wanted Americans to be all the more committed to an anti-Soviet kind of political posture. Anyhow, key thing here, they all joined the Communist Party Historians Group after World War II, which became a real incubator for the kind of history that they would all come to write in their respective periods of English history or world history for that matter. And their task in their mind was to basically write very much a Marxist influence story of Britain and in case of Hobsbawm and others of the world history, but let's stick especially to English and British history. And they remained very active in the party and in the communist party historians group until 1956. Yeah. And in 56, you had not only the revelations about Stalinism and the, and the camps and, and all of that, but you also had the Soviet invasion of Hungary when Hungary sought to create a new, another path if you like, to socialism. And particularly E.P. Thompson, uh, Rodney Hilton, uh, those two most immediately, and then Christopher Hill as well. Um, Hobson never left the party. He might have spoken out at times, but he never left the party. But those three, with Thompson in the lead and another man named John Saville, a well-known Marxist labor historian, they split and they created basically what would become the New Left Review as an alternative, as a way they called it, they wanted to create a socialist humanism, okay, a more humane and democratic Marxism. And they were also involved, a few of them, in the creation of the Socialist Register, an annual volume created by Saville and Miliband, which is still published today. And for many years after Miliband's passing, Leo Panitch up in Canada was a, a 
was the editor really in chief. Um, so they played a really significant role, first of all, in transforming the writing of history so that no longer would history be simply the story of not simply kings and queens, but generals, statesmen, corporate bosses. The idea was to write history from the bottom up. And if you'll allow me, I just want to read just a, a couple of lines from Donna Tor's work, which Please tells me I think, I think she, is very important. It, this was the, the, the way she influenced them. She said, it must be our task, our duty to keep green the memory of our order, to record its struggles, to mark its victories, point to fresh conquests, and to gather from defeats the elements of success. We should see then that the world grasps civilization with the rough, large hand of the laborer, not with the slim, gloved fingers of the noble. Okay. Can I inter interject here just real quick, yeah, Harvey? Please. Because uh, just to help link that to the overall reason why this book matters so much and why these historians matter so much, it strikes me that not only are they telling history from the bottom up. Uh, insofar as they're documenting the voices, experiences, and so forth of people that usually history doesn't listen to and, and doesn't tell from the perspective of. But uh, two things. One, there's a theoretical contribution about the the cause causation and, and agency of those from the bottom in the class struggle that determines history that actually changes things in liberatory ways, right? That was missing, right? And so maybe you could speak to, to that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to finish the line. I can't remember what it was. The other important thing, and this also relates to the question of, for lack of a better way of putting it, human agency, okay? For better or worse, let me make it clear. Um, she was also the one I was told, this I was told over dinner with Dorothy and Edward Thompson and heard it from others that she was the one who taught them against the, the notions prevailing that you don't want a catastrophe as your means to try to create dramatic, radical, or if you like, revolutionary change. And yeah. as they, because as they saw it from their vantage point in England, those, the catastrophe of the Great Depression provided the grounds upon which fascism, Nazism right, right. came to prevail in Italy and then in um, in Germany. And the It's like an anti-accelerationist, right? Yeah, decidedly. You bet. Exactly. And um, so to back up for a moment. Yeah. So when we look at these historians in the, the work they did, the work they did, they are indeed trying to write a history from the bottom up, which is not simply a history of the bottom. Okay. This is a history yeah. in which in which the struggles, whether it's resistance or rebellion or revolution, matter matter to the making of history. Now, it's by no means simply a, what you would have in the old days have called a Whig history. Like, it, it makes things better all the time. I mean, the defeats always have outnumbered the victories on the part of progressive and working class people, okay? However, however... It's also the case, in fact, Hilton shows very interestingly, that although the English peasant rising of 1381 was defeated, things did change. It so shook up the social order and the power of the landlord class that things did indeed change for fear, possibly, that the rising would reemerge. Okay, that, that's important to note. The other thing is, is that undeniably, it, 
wasn't a revolution that took place in late 18th century England, but the radicalism of late 18th century England of both working class and middle class folks demanding a more democratic voice in British and English politics, okay, did lead to reforms. The British ruling class smartly, first step was to actually grant grant the vote to the middle class, which was to divide, you, you could say, the working class and the middle class. But indeed, in time, the British labor movement from, through Chartism and socialism and other forces secures democracy in Britain. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's the story they want people to appreciate. Why? Because it's so easy to fall into, like today, so easy to fall into the presumption that the way things are may not be the way we want them to be, but it's the way they have to be, okay? And, and in fact, I keep asking myself, what sense will we make of the current worker insurgencies that we've seen, okay? That I mean, I don't know if we want to get, I don't want to jump right into contemporary. I like this a lot, actually, because I, I oh. talk to, to people really, um, you know, closely tied into to the, to, to the labor movement and to labor. And um, as much as they love the little victories, they kind of are quite depressed of the overall, uh, you know, power asymmetry. Right. And, yeah. and, and oh, the absolutely. Over- so, so, so this is helpful to remember that, that kind of the defeats in history uh, and the little victories, even if they were out balanced by right. The, the larger defeats yeah. um, persist in history and have, have a fe- take effect and aren't just um, inconsequential, right? That there's yeah, something. Right. And in fact, is it here? Let me give it, let me go deeper into the, their approach to these kinds of questions. The word resistance never appeared in historical studies, to my knowledge, until their work raised that those kinds of questions. Okay, so for example, um, one could say, "One look, the ruling class in whatever form or period, they will try to define certain kinds of political actions by the exploited." Let me just say something. In their work, they begin from a certain understanding of class. I'll just say that. And it has to do with relations of extraction or, or if you like, relations of production, okay? Which is, in essence, also in our terms quite often expressed as, excuse me, property relations. Though property is not a really effective way of addressing it. It's relations of extraction. So one class deriving deriving its well-being from the labor of another class. And that's crudely put, okay? Deriving its wealth, deriving its own source of material well-being from the labor of another class, okay? The transfer of wealth. Now, let me say this. We have lived through 45 years in which nobody would tell us, nobody would say, well, yeah, these last 45 years, if they weren't specifically Harvey K, perhaps, they wouldn't, because I've said this over and over again on this podcast, I mean, 45 years, and in fact, and I think Ryan's book makes a good point of this too, is undeniable. For 45 years, we've seen a transfer of wealth from working people to what we think of as the billionaire class today, but we could say to the rich. Now, that can be just referred to as a transfer of wealth, but that's a sign of the success of the class war that the rich have waged on the working class and the poor, okay? 
because it isn't simply the wealth was transferred. I mean, pensions were smashed, unions were smashed, pensions were destroyed, communities were ripped apart, uh, factories were closed. Um, you know, workers, if they were lucky, went from maybe $25 an hour to like a $10 an hour, you know, job. So for the factory closed, and they got a job at Walmart as a greeter, that kind of stuff. So what they do is they say, look, let's go back in time now. They say, we have to see these relations between these, these groups, not simply in terms of what the Marxists used to say. Well, what did they used to say? They would say, what is, what is class struggle? Well, it's class consciousness creates class struggle. And the idea is that the role of intellectuals, this is a very Leninist idea, the role of intellectuals is to bring truth to the working class, to wake, to, to awaken them, to use the, the expression, right? And then because really, as, as Lenin claimed, the best working class can accomplish is labor unions, okay? So you need this vanguard of intellectuals in, and a political party. What, what they reveal is, first of all, the importance of understanding the degree to which laboring classes throughout history have had their own understandings of the exploitation they've been experiencing. And on closer examination, as they reveal, there are, if you like, for lack of a better way of putting it, movements already afoot, such as which take maybe the form of resistance, trying to reduce the capacity of the Lord to take everything you've just produced, okay? Or for workers to slow down, to break machinery as the Luddites did, okay? Now, these things would have been defined as criminal, basically. But we need, but what they did is they helped us understand the degree to which the ruling class defined crime was in many cases a kind of, a kind of resistance and if you like, sort of proto form of class struggle that we're witnessing. Okay. So, you know, so in essence, we have to ask different kinds of questions than we've been asking. I mean, they were very concerned about redefining understandings to use George Ruday's example. You know, most historians for generations from the 19th century and 20th, they referred to crowd actions as mob actions. And if you use the word mob, the mob, first of all, is faceless. The mob is angry. The mob, and who are the mob? Well, look, go back and look at these historians. They Those are the folks that a Marxist might have called lumpen proletarians, the bottom of the barrel, okay? The folks who are as marginal as possible and they're easily bought off and, and mobilized with a drink or a meal or whatever else. Well, in the case of George Rude, for example, his first task, he said, was to go into the archives, to the police records and ask who were these people. And what he discovered was, the so-called mob, both in Paris and London in the late 18th century, was often made up of artisans, skilled artisans, and even middle-class folks who were denied the right to vote. So their activities were often going to take the, you know, it was called politics out of doors. You Okay, you might literally turn up for a rally. You might be mobilized to go attack the home of some political uh, figure or or authority of government, which was, by the way, very much a part of the American rebellion of the 1760s and 1770s until Thomas Paine's common sense and, and of course, the Continental Army emerges as the force of the 13 colonies. Anyhow, yeah. so they're, they're the ones who really insist on thinking about it this way. Relations of extraction, relations of, ex, of exploitation 
and gender class conflict. It's out of class conflict that a kind of consciousness is possible. Okay. And moreover, if you look closely at any significant movement through history of a class sort of uh, nature, they've had their own, if you like, native or religious customs that have served as, if you like, ideological outlets. I mean, think about I'm jumping all over history, but think about the farm workers movement in California. Most of the time when they're marching, they've got the Virgen, the Guadalupe, as the the icon that they're carrying alongside of the American flag. Well, yeah. if you go back, I mean it's those kinds of things. And and it was it's intellectually elitism that leads us to presume. But think about it. I used to tell my students, here's an for how many generations did social scientists and historians think about popular movements in like physics. They think about it in terms of physics, right? So, you know, the old inertia, right? Yeah. Tell me. The ideal gas law, like like just molecules in a balloon. The, yeah. The, to- when, yeah. So, so another, and, and presumed in the case of inertia that it had to be, op- it had to be, if you like, effect, effected by an external object, Right. Well, the, who's the external object? Well, of course, intellectuals, right? Party <laughs> leaders and it's, stuff like that. It's us. We we did it. Which, by the way, continues to be a disease of the of the chattering classes. And by the way, you know, I'm sure you've run into that many a times, Alexi, among colleagues who who basically think, in spite of their miserable conditions as academics, they have this idea that somehow, you know, they have little reason to believe they have something to learn from working people. Yeah. Well, so, so like drill down into this a little bit though. And in, 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 not just in terms of uh, the details of, you know, uh, what was happening, but like why Marxism was important to these folks, because I think of Marxism today and, you know, you, you sort of have on the one hand, a a not particularly well, a, like people take it semi-seriously in the historical and economic realm, but it, like it is much deprecated relative to Keynes and, and other folks. And then, uh, you know, you have a sort of like dogmatic, almost religious attachment to uh, Marx's specific predictions rather than, than his like overall approach and you know that in a, in a way that is like just kind of pathetic and and ridiculous uh you know that like oh we we have to defend like his particular claim about the falling rate of profit you know that like if 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 there's ever any data showing that the fall the rate of profit is increasing we have to like build you know barricades around that uh, that's just like, that's not a, that's not what real like a thinker would do. You know, that's not what Marx would right. do. Marx it's, said, it's I'm a, not a Marxist, right? That's right. Exactly. No, like, it's, it's, it's not at all. <laughs> so, it's so like the, like going from, you know, the past to the, the, the present, like from pe- people studying medieval history, like what is Marx, you know, what, what sort of like, um, well, wait, let me, you're switching the question. You started off by asking what, I thought you were asking me what led them believe, to, to, to believe that Marxism was going to, was so essential that they would embrace this for historical study. 
That's the question, but can I add on to it? Or if Ryan wants to modify it? Okay, but I'm going to answer, answer his question if you've, if you've muddied my waters. Just trust me. Just trust me that my add-on will be interesting. I always trust you okay. guys. Because <laughs> I think his question is related to early on uh, when you discuss how historians and sociologists uh, should, properly speaking, understand each other as per- doing the same inquiry. Like g- good sociology is good history. Good history is good sociology. Yeah. And I think – to set you up, why Marx matters, it relates to that because good sociology and good history is good Marxian sociology and Marxian history. Isn't it? Yes, very much so. Okay. It's two parts to this question. And the first one, biographical terms, then I'm of of that generation of historians, the cohort, and then I'll turn to what Alexei is clearly implying. Okay. (laughs) All right. Okay. For a start, they all grew up well, not they all, they each had a very unique, you know, growing up, but they grew up or came to mature. They were coming to maturity in the 1930s. Okay. When capitalism was in its worst crisis ever, the great depression. And, and as bad as undeniably the United States suffered the depression, probably worse than anywhere, except maybe the Germans would argue that they suffered it equally in Britain. The unemployment situation was horrific, okay? And working people were marching. I mean, there were hunger marches. I mean, the situation was... was, And these guys had at least the advantage. They were being taken into... Well, well, here they're called Ivy League universities. There was the Oxford and Cambridge schools. And they weren't from... They were not from elite families. They were, in most cases, from middle class and even lower middle class backgrounds and may well have been sort of admitted as part of, you know, the old scholarship kinds of stuff. But the thing is, in Christopher Hill's case, he grew up in a, in a Methodist family. In, in E.P. Thompson's case, he grew up in a Methodist family that actually was intrigued by South Asian religious beliefs when his parents were the missionaries. And But the point is that there were notions clearly of justice that prevailed. And by the way, not surprisingly... When Hill writes about the 17th century, he's trying to deal with the question of nonconformism and to what extent it was stabilizing and to what extent it provided a basis for radicalism. Similarly, with Thompson, as as nasty as he gets at times about Methodism, he really takes it seriously. And in order to understand what's driving the English working class into recognize into into its sort of struggles with with, with, you know, the English, you know, landlord class and the, and the owner class and the early factory class, that kind of stuff. So they're facing all of this and the existing parties, whether they were, some people went into the Labour Party, but there was also, you know, the Tories and the Liberals. And frankly, they were looking for an alternative and they were young. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 19, 20, 21 year olds. And the Communist Party seemed to offer the only alternative and the Soviet Union though the stories may not have been well known to them, was, was the, the model alternative. There had been a Soviet revolution. So I think that's what they're, they're embracing, okay? And, and by the way, I mean, I didn't hesitate at times to challenge one or more of them about their sticking with the party in, despite the Hitler-Stalin pact in 1940 with, in the case of Hobsbawm, we, we had a long, long conversation in the walking in the woods, not Bretton Woods. We were walking in the woods up in Door <laughs> County, Wisconsin. And at first I was so, I mean, when afterward we were sitting for, at lunch and I said to Hobsbawm, 
because I asked him how he stayed in the party all those years. And he had not written about this at that time. And he had explained all this to me. And it really came down to a sense of loyalty and uh, uh, basically to yeah. his comrades in the past. And I said, geez, I wish I had tape recorded that conversation. And he said, to my amazement, he said, so do I. And later, I should have included that in that little memoir that I said. And later, of course, he addresses it in one or in two different places in different ways. So to them, this, I mean, although Hasbam is the only one who stayed in the party. In fact, in some ways, the party left him. Okay. Um, It is the case that the others had entered the party with sincere convictions as to the necessity of an alternative to capitalism and what they might have called in their youth bourgeois parties, okay? Though later, to to use the term bourgeois would never have occurred to most of those historians because it it failed to appreciate history, which allows me to segue to what Alexei is getting at. And and one of the things about Marx, which which is inadequately appreciated, and don't forget, he's writing in the 19th century. I believe his greatest insight actually is in the Communist Manifesto, which is otherwise a pamphlet and not a major scholarly work, but that is that the history of all hitherto society is the history of class struggles. And I still believe that. And I have and I have no reason to no one can disabuse me of it because they can't show me otherwise. OK, OK, yeah. OK. But having said that, having said that, that that in itself is simply, a, if you like, somewhere I be, one begins to ask questions. He said I am not a Marxist. And and by the way, the crudest forms of Marxism were due to his best friend, the guy who really enabled Marx to survive and with his family all those years, and that's Engels. Engels, after Marx's death, tries to formulate Marxism. Like, I don't know if Marx himself ever used the term dialectical materialism. I think that's a, an Engels term. I've never used it. I, I like the word, I like dialectical. And I don't mind materialism, but I'm not going. But I'm not going to create a law of dialectical materialism. You might say, okay. And yeah. and by the way, once upon a time, I was undeniably in quotes a Marxist. I don't need the term any longer. I remember my friend Mike Kazin once said to me, "So do you think you're st- you think of yourself still as a Marxist?" And I said, "No, but I'm not going to leave behind what I think is the most powerful insight: is the history of class struggle." Is you know. It, it prevails only when we create a truly democratic kind of society. Notice I said democratic society. I mean, we could have a whole evening together sometime and I'll explain to you what Marx was getting at, despite the stupidity of his term dictatorship of the proletariat, which was meant to be a metaphorical and poetic term as opposed to the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, was really an argument for democracy. He got into the whole socialist thing because of democracy, defending the Silesian, is that how you pronounce it? You know, workers, those kinds of things. So. When we can say that workers have a voice in the ways in which what they've been involved in, in the materialities that they've helped produce, and they truly have a voice in all that, then we can say, hey, we're on our way to, you know, call it socialism or, or whatever else. And social democracy is, is not a bad way to begin, I'd say. Okay, so the other thing about it is this, and this I got from George Rude as an expression of what they were all doing. Rude quotes, and I don't remember if it was, I think it was quoting Marx, all history needs to be studied afresh. Okay. And if you take, and if you take, if you look at history, you can't create a law of history that's going to be transcendent, transcendent. Okay. And even the idea of all the history of all hitherto societies is the history of class struggle is not a transcendent argument. The presumption is there have, 
there can be, and indeed there have been, societies in which class conflict, class struggles have not existed, probably because they were more cooperatively organized and based, or in the future, more democratically organized and based. Does that help? Yeah. Yes. I- that sounds good. I should remember what I just said. <laughs> It's good, but well, I also had in mind the the idea that these thinkers were doing history and theory in a way that kind of addresses what Ryan was um, criticizing from the vulgar Marxists, the kind of base superstructure reductive, you know, as, as Ryan likes to say, that the turn crank economic determinism. And, and, and I think that's really interesting because kind of the, the, if you will, anthropological texture that comes from the bottom up history uh, serves a kind of theorizing that makes more nuanced the, the causal direction of history and at the same time opens up a space for the agency. You know, the line from, from Marx that, uh, you know, men make history, but not, uh, under the conditions of their choosing, right? right? Um, but, but these, you know, British Marxist historians seem to really, that's the space where they really dig in and, and and help us understand and grow, I think, you know, in a way that feeds into your project, Harvey, grow both the education and desire uh, for, for um, change and what it requires by exploring the role of um, the people and using and drawing upon history to be agents of change, right? Yeah. Well, yes. And now if I go a little by autobiographical in this moment. So, what led me to the British Marxist historians is the fact that I was trying to, my undergraduate degree was in history. My interests really were in international relations. I, I studied at the University of London at the University College in London School of Economics. And I, international relations was my specialization, especially with Latin America attached. And, but I, I had this minor subject in of all things, sort of agrarian studies of Latin America, because Latin America was my interest. And I remember as, at the Christmas time, where you get three weeks off in a British university, um, my one of one of my three seminar. Well, he wasn't a professor; that's a fancy title over there. But he, it, for lack of a better word, he was my one of my lecturers. But it was a seminar, so there were like five of us and and him. And he was very young, and he was definitely a Marxist. And uh, got his, was finishing his PhD at Cambridge at the time. And he called me aside just before we were leaving for the winter break, and he said, "You know, Harvey." You've studied Latin America. You've lived in South America, in Mexico. You know more about Latin America than everyone else in this program, you know, students in this program. But you're not asking the right questions. And he set me a task. He said, "Just here's a question I have for you. Are Latin American, in quotes, peasants, peasants or agricultural workers? And the way I want you to get at that, and he handed me the, the, this, these books well, which were turned into paperbacks in this country, um, having to do with land tenure studies of the various Latin American countries as to ownership and rentals. I mean, it's really fascinating stuff. And what he wanted me to do was based on these empirical studies, peasants, workers. And then, which also led me to have to go find out how do you define a peasant versus a worker? And really, and by the time I came back, I was just fascinated by this stuff. And by the end of the year, I switched away if I had stayed in London, I would have done international relations, but I was out of money for a PhD. And I came back to the States and I eventually went on. I went from LSE to LSU, you might say. And I ended up working in, in agrarian studies. In I, I was interested in development and landlord and peasant relations. And keep in mind, we're talking 1973, 74, 75. My plan was to do a dissertation on how 
Chilean peasant movements transform themselves into some kind of cooperative or organizational structure with the Allende, the, you know, the socialist land reforms that were taking place. And when I arrived at LSU in August of 1973, the first week of our semester was the overthrow of the IND government. So my dissertation just went out the window. And I then had decided that year to work on a historical sociological dissertation, influenced in, in part by historical and social science kinds of ideas. And if I were to refer to anyone at the beginning who might have influenced my thinking, it was probably Barrington Moore Jr., the author of Social Origins of Dictatorship and Democracy. But I was especially interested in development questions. And there was a writer, world-renowned writer of the time, called Andre Gunder Frank, who was the leading theorist of what was called dependence theory, dependency theory, which, which is the, the, if you like, the basis of what Emanuel Wallerstein would be called the world system. And in Wallerstein's case, also influenced by Fernand Brodel in the Annals School. So I was, in, I was just lapping up Andre Gunder Frank's stuff. So I took a group of students to Mexico in the summer of 1974, maybe it was, and as part of a whole group that were undergraduates that I took. And when I came back, really revved up, I'm sitting in this office and I found I had a new office assistant, not assistant, an office mate, a guy doing his master's, by the way, who played first string tackle for Texas A&M football. He's a great guy to have as your sidekick. <laughs> nobody messed with you. <laughs> Kevin Smith, he went on to do uh, become a professor at one of the uh, Texas state schools. Anyhow, Kevin said to me, because I was rattling on about things, and I was obviously using the word exploitation a hell of a lot. And he said, hey, whoa, <laughs> whoa, would you do me a favor and define exploitation? And I couldn't do it other than in moral terms, which, by the way, is not a bad basis upon which to define it. But I was very unsettled. How am I going to talk about landlord-peasant relations if I'm basing it on, on, a, on a moral standard, right? That may not prevail, you know, in, in that. Okay, so I left campus very disgruntled and I walked over to this bookstore just off campus, which I have a feeling was owned by two elderly radical folks, but I wasn't sure, I just surmising. They had a phenomenal collection of new and used books, more books on slavery than you can imagine, but this is Louisiana, so you, you can understand why. And I just picked off the shelf the political economy of slavery and roll Jordan roll and the world the slaveholders made, which was authored by, which were authored by Eugene Genovese, who was the leading, one of the leading historians of slavery and happened to be probably the foremost Marxist historian in the United States at that time. And I read his stuff and I was blown away. I said, Oh my God, this is, and I wrote to Genovese, who was then, I think, at University of Rochester, vaguely recall. And I said to him what I was working on and how I was influenced. And I, that I loved his work. And did he have any suggestions as to how I might transform the slavery question to landlord-peasant relations? And he said, well, you've, you've read my stuff. Now you have to read the British Marxist historians. So I read in and out of their work. I, I couldn't read their whole oeuvre as, okay, while well, I'm working on Latin America. And I ended up writing a dissertation titled The Political Economy of Seniorialism, which had to do with what I argued was... It, it was its own kind of social relations of production that prevailed and how then to explain the struggles of peasants in Latin America in contrast to these other historical formations. Yeah. Draw, draw that out a little bit more explicitly here. So the, the, 
the dependency theory thing is is very common still today. The idea that like the riches of the wealthy countries, like it is like in the main extracted from, uh, you know, the third world. You know, the, there are various versions of it. Global uh, North, Global South. Yeah, Global North, Global South. Just so you know, when I first got into it, there was a theory that prevailed in Latin American development studies called dualism, which basically argued that these Latin American societies were divided into two societies. And there was the modern society, usually based around you know the major cities, and then there was the other society, the backward society of the countryside and in South America, especially up in the Andes. And that the it was imperative, according to what was then called modernization theory, that this modernization be brought to these parts of the country. They needed to be modernized. You needed capitalist investment. Now, let me just add, the program that I that I was a part of that was called Social Change Development here in Wisconsin, and then Democracy and Justice Studies, was originally called Modernization Theory. It was so prevalent, okay? And, and what it was is that Andre Gunder Frank said, wait a second. It was an, I mean, the kind of historical question any good historical-minded thinker would ask and said, wait a second, the so-called backward areas say and Bolivia, Peru, the northeast of Brazil, and so on, these areas were once at the heart, the very heart, or at least, sorry, not the heart, at the bottom, the at the place where extraction most of was taking place and then feeding into and building this world capitalist system. Yeah, they, they, they were not, they were not, absent from the process of capitalist production, right? Like the very opposite. They were the source. Now, and, and there's no question about the degree to which those those regions suffered from those experiences. I'm not at all, nobody would deny that. But the fact was that, that um, as the, the Marxist historians would say, is that what Gunder Frank does is it creates these 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 structures ultimately in Wallerstein these structures in which human action first of all seems irrelevant and the class relationships that prevail in any particular place are irrelevant that it's the structure of the system okay now i'm going to give you a comparative example so take the united states right and you've got the northeastern part of the united states and the southern part of the united states this is back in the both the colonial and then even into the early 19th century, right? And historians like to say, well, the South was, you know, it was providing all this wealth to the North and to England, okay? Well, the fact is, the fact is that actually the North was wealthier, wealthier in the sense that its, its mode of exploitation, for lack of a better term, okay, based on the capacity of, of you know, boss uh, owners and workers and family farms, okay, was actually providing for economic development, okay? Slavery was a backward. Now, there's this whole standing debate about slavery in the South was capitalism. It's a different class extraction that took place down there, okay? Similarly, and then ask yourself this, out in the West, the mining regions, they were extractive areas, and undeniably, parts of the West suffered environmentally and otherwise, but the West did not suffer 
the exploit the, the the backwardness that the South became. I mean, the South was economically backward. In the 1930s, you'd have a hard time distinguishing between the most backward part of Europe and the, and the Southern United States. Okay, because it was operating under a whole different set of class relations and class structure and, and class and, sorry extraction relations and class relationships. So what the Marxist historians showed me was that you have, really have to understand, if in, because I was interested in the de, in development questions, is how class and not extraction in itself will shape the degree to which any particular place becomes, if you like, improved. Or more, or in quotes, more modern, and so on. So anyhow, so they it, Which, it, it influenced it, and you know, seniorialism prevailed throughout Latin America. In, in I didn't actually include Brazil in my dissertation because Brazil was so much a slave society. They they actually brought the final end to slavery after the United States brought a final end to slavery. What do you say to Ryan's question? Because I think Ryan, tell me if if I'm wrong here. One of the implications of your question is. Today, there's a lot of politics that talk about, um, you know, the global South and, and there are questions of whether social democracy or advances for workers in the global North, like in the United States is, uh, is a kind of tricky thing to advocate for because what you're doing is you're perpetuating the extraction from the global South when you're helping the workers in the global North, that kind of situation. Uh, what, what's your, what's your take on, on well, the I can tell of, you at the time I was yeah. working on, on the time I was working on this, people asked, well, what, what are the implications of this? Andre Gunder Frank, dependency theory and world systems theory. And the, and the implications were you pull out of the world economy. Autarky, I think it's called. Okay. Yeah. Autarky would guarantee backwardness. I mean, okay. I mean, history is, fi- I'll never, sorry, I'm going to go a little bit around the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm tr- so I was trying to deal with this question of landlords and peasants. And, and I was driven into world history, into Eastern Europe. Okay. And there was a historian, Alexander Gershenkrin, who talked about, what was it called? The, it was like advantage of economic backward. I'm forgetting the term. Oh, wait. The idea was that in the industrial north, for lack of a better way of putting it, in the industrial north, they had created technologies which could readily and were being readily transferred to other regions of the world. Okay. Now, in the early stages of American and European capitalism, you needed a lot of labor. The technologies reduced the demand for large labor inputs. So on the one sense, in one sense, you bring the technologies to these areas. Wow, it's great. Okay. I mean, they don't have to develop these technologies on their own, but then you're introducing it into a different kind of order. Okay. If it seems like I'm avoiding this question of imperialism and neocolonialism, <laughs> there's some truth to it, okay? Because I don't think for a moment you would want to dismiss the role, especially in the age of global finance and the age of international agencies that are literally corrupted by whether oh, yeah. they're Soviet, Chinese, American, Dutch, or British, or whoever corporate orders, okay? You've mm-hmm. got... I mean, it's undeniable what, what we know it's happening. Okay. We know it. IMF, World Bank. Yeah. Okay. But it's also the case, it's also the case that the alternative, that there's no alternative to mobilizing people, for, first of all. Okay. And there's no alternative to trying to create, I mean, if you're going to try to create a, demo, a, a more 
egalitarian and freer kind of order. There's no avoiding it. You don't, it's not going to happen because of terrorism. It's not going to happen because of an elite political force. It's one of the tragedies of history that we've, that parts of the world have come to believe that militaries can provide the alternative. I'm thinking of in Africa. I mean, at, at, look, the situation in Africa is not merely a consequence of, uh, isn't a consequence of merely colonialism alone. Okay. Period. Any more than the story of Latin American dictatorships is merely a consequence. As I used to say to people, the Chilean ruling class and military didn't need the United States. Okay. If they wanted to take out Allende, they were going to take out Allende. But sure as hell, the CIA made it a hell of a lot more possible. Okay. Now, I know people are going to get pissed off when I say that. All I'm getting at is, is if you, it's, if you want to bring about change, then change the United States. <laughs> yeah. We're trying, Harvey. We're trying. Okay. I'm in a seminar. I was in a seminar in 1975, a development studies seminar, which was inclusive of people doing Southern U.S. studies and Latin America around sort of global studies. And I was, you know, I was going on about American imperialism. I lost my temper one night. I was going on about American imperialism. And my best friend, whose field was specifically Louisiana politics, he said to me, well, from what you're saying, there's only th the only thing you can do is you got to go out and make it. You've got to be part of a movement that makes a dramatic transformation in the United States. Okay. Not that that's going to sort of solve the problems over there. Okay. Sure. But what it is going to do is going to start to, to make this a different kind of place so that we're not necessarily pursuing our own ends. And, and, and those folks will have some force to ally with, you know, as the United States once upon a time projected itself as. So does that mean we should feel a little heartened by the, the small victories? I'm, re I'm returning back to the question of the current labor strikes and, and uh, some of the, the success we're seeing. How should, yeah, how should we think of that? What, what can we learn? Actually, that was really good. I almost was ready to take, to, I really want to go, that was something I wanted to respond to when you raised that in response to my reference. You know, right now, those of us on the left and, and those of us especially who belong to labor unions, we, 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 we want to believe that this is the beginning of this remarkable transformation. Okay. We desperately want to believe it. And I was talking to someone whose name I won't mention because I don't want to, I don't want people to go after him. He said to me, you know, it's not working. Said, and there's a young Marxist. He said, it's not working. Just if it was working, if it was working, we'd see a broad kind of set of activities. What we're seeing is a lot of activity. Our, problem, our problems are pretty obvious. First of all, we have a labor. We have the AFL-CIO is utterly inadequate to the task. It's just not inadequate. They seem disinterested. Okay. I mean, ask the le labor leaders who are trying to bring about change, like maybe Sean O'Brien of the Teamsters and Sarah Nelson. Ask them with the kind of responses, you know, to this Chris Smalls initiatives that the AFL-CIO has offered. I mean, the labor movement is about as moribund as a movement as the Democratic Party is as a party of democracy. <laughs> but yeah. we know that within the Democratic Party, there are progressives. True. It seems like at times we can actually influence change. I mean, we thought so because Biden seemed to move in a in a you know in a Bernie direction, or at least, a, a, for lack of a better word, a sort of social democratic direction. But there's so much going on there. I don't. I won't buy that argument. I know that. I know the American prospect has different views of it, but 
I, I'm not prepared to embrace Joe Biden at this point, given what I know to be happening behind the scenes with Medicare and you know, appointments to offices and stuff like that. Don't don't you dare sully the name of the American prospect by saying <laughs> I love the American prospect. Biden. I they well. published my Amer- my Thomas Paine, you know, key article years ago in the American Prospect. Okay. But here's the other thing. So, but it's also the case that workers are organizing. Okay. And the media is not helping. There's no the media like the media sucks. Let's put it that way. How many people how many people even know when a local initiative to organize, whether it's a Starbucks or an Amazon or indeed something larger and more significant. How many times in how many times have you heard about the UM the United Mine Workers Strike or the Mine Workers Strike down in Alabama? Right? Unless you're on Twitter following, you know, Sarah Nelson or Kim, you know, Kim Kelly, you know, that kind. Where do you hear about Maximilian it? Alvarez? Or, sorry, and I should have said Maximilian first and foremost. I mean friend, right? Friends. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, it's also the, so we've got, we don't have that. And fortunately he's doing a damn good job in getting, in keeping the word out, at least among folks who are sincerely interested in it. But, um, you know, so we have to, we, on one hand, know that it's taking place. How do we make sense of it? I don't have a full grasp of it. I I had thought seriously uh, about a year ago that we might pull off a, a change in the AFL-CIO. I mean, I was working hard to try to help, if the opportunity arose, Sarah Nelson to take the le- a leadership role there. Um, what we need, perhaps, sorry, do you want me to break away and tell you what I think we need in this instance? I, I Look, if you look back at the American labor movement, there were very prominent, absolutely crucial figures who never were president of the AFL-CIO. For a start. Okay. I mean, whether it was John Lewis back in the 30s, Walter Ruther in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and or the 60s to up until his death. Um, A. Philip Randolph, okay, a towering figure in labor and civil rights. Now, they were towering because they were they knew that being president of the FLCA wasn't gonna make the difference. What would make the difference is creating initiatives that would organize. But they had, they were able to create coalitions. So in the 30s, John Lewis was able to formulate literally a coalition, put together a coalition along with Sidney Hillman that came to be the CIO. Walter Ruther, even though he didn't get the presidency of the FFL-CIO when they merged again, when they came back together in 1955, Ruther headed up the industrial division or industrial department. Okay, which was a really significant progressive force inside of labor. A. Philip Randolph was regularly involved inside and outside, meaning inside the labor movement, and then alongside uh, Martin Luther King and Baird Rustin and others in the civil rights movement. We just don't see the coalition building outside that we need, nor do we see the coalition building inside yet that we need. And, um, And I ask myself every day, what the fuck can I do? And I'm, you know, and, and then I say to myself, what kind of ego do you have that you're supposed to be able to do something, right? <laughs> but I, but one hopes to sort of create a conversation among these people. I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I think your book, I'll let Ryan jump in here, but I do think your, your book ends on a, on a hopeful note in the sense that like studying history and these historians and their contributions to social theory and to history is supposed to help 
in part because of the ways that these problems with organizing or with um, doing what needs to be done in in praxis uh, is helped by education and by, you know, an imagination inspired by history. Um, so there is something to the book you are writing the new edition for contributing to the, the struggle because of also the way that ideas have um, causal force in history. You know? Yeah, so, no, thank you. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, by the way, if we got, let me now segue back into the British Marxists for a moment. Okay. Although I'm probably putting you guys to sleep soon. Um, what time do we start? Jesus. It's, we should probably wrap up in a few minutes, but this is... Okay, this here's is, the thing. This should probably have been earlier. One of, one of the things that the British historians did following up on your reference a long time ago, which I should have picked up on, is they, and in their own way, they declared war on the whole idea of a base and a superstructure. You know, it's bullshit, the base and the superstructure, okay? They yep. are not... Marxism is not reducible to economics, okay? Economics is a is a bourgeois concept, let's face That's it. That's right. It's a critique of political economy. That's the point. Yeah. Right. Okay. The naturalization of economics. Yeah. yeah. But what, so, and their point, let me give you a primary example. Let's suppose we talk about the wage relationship. That's an extraction relationship in Marxian terms. Okay. How can you have the capitalist worker wage relationship without the laws that define it, without the police that can enforce it, without the cultural expectations that might go into what it means to be a worker? I mean, Social relations of production are themselves a totality. There is no such thing as a social relations of production separate from any more than, okay? I mean, how can we understand the creation of technologies and their implementations if we don't understand the ways in which they have to fit into, they grow out of and fit into a particular kind of social order? So it's not economic determinism, Marxism, and it's not technological determinism, at least not in the hands of these British historians. And first and foremost, and this will help us wrap it up, they definitely pursued their studies, first of all, to show the degree to which Marx's theory, all hitherto existing societies, the history of class struggle, undeniable. Two, that struggles from the bottom up do matter. Three, that they as historians and, and intellectuals, and they were indeed what we think of as public intellectuals, had a resp- had as much of a responsibility to go beyond the confines of the classroom or academe and to make these things part of the broader mind you know of the, of the people and don't forget thompson came out of adult education and worker education hobsbawm began his teaching inside the british you know he's in the education division of the army um they all were committed to those kinds of things you know, Christopher Hill's at Balliol College. It's hard to imagine he's going to teach anyone but the children of the elite. But their ethos was that this was meant in many ways to, to remind folks, to remind folks of how history is made and that we ourselves are a part of history. And you guys have done every book of mine of the last how many years on this show. And you know that every time we've talked that has been the theme, whether it was pain or FDR or take hold of our history and the way they shaped my thinking. And I'll just say one other thing. I should say two other things. First of all, when I knew them best back in the 80s into the early 90s 
and I knew Hobsbawm up well right up until his death. Each one of them in their own way had said to me, you've done a great job on us. Okay. <laughs> with us. Why don't you write American history? You know what you need to do. Okay. And, you know, so they pushed me to do the American story, which by the way, I'll ne- I can't thank them enough for doing because you know, just it's carry the torch, you know? And then, and the other thing was that, that what really, what I could never really get over is that one of the reasons I wrote the book is that my counterparts in Britain, my generation counterparts, they were attacking the British historians because they had all bought into the Althusserian structuralist models. They were sociologists, these folks in particular. Mm. And, and they were attacking them, right? As somehow inadequate. Okay. Historicist. You can almost hear those things. And I used to say, I'll end on a funny note. I think it's funny. I used to say, wait a minute. There's something Freudian about this. These young historians attacking the older historians in order to embrace Cleo all the more tightly. <laughs> nice. Jeez. That's probably a good Thanks, place to, uh, to wrap it up here. But yeah, Harvey K, Professor Harvey K, the book is The British Marxist Historians. You've got E.B. Thompson, my boy, Eric Hobsbawm, <laughs> my one of my maybe my favorite writer of any sort. No offense to anyone who's listening, including you, Harvey. Uh, <laughs> it, like he was, he's just on another level. Yeah, he. Yeah, there's no doubt. And by the way, it's a footnote to that. This last, two weeks ago, last week, this week, whatever it was, Julia Hobsbawm, his daughter, who's a prominent writer. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, writes for Bloomberg. You'll see. Okay. Uh, <laughs> followed me on Twitter, and we've sort of hey, gotten to exchanging notes on occasion. Splendid. Yeah, well, Eric Hobsbawm yeah. really was. When I first approached the British historians, you've read this, but let me tell everyone in case you want to use it. I had assumed the historian who I would get close to the soonest was Hobsbawm. Jewish background did Latin America as part of a broad array of, of, of research and, and, and book writing and articles and all that. And when I wrote to them, hoping to interview them when I was going to be over in England in the winter of 82, 83, something like that, I, um, I got a very warm invitation from Christopher Hill, from Rodney Hilton, and even from a man who was overwhelmingly involved in the anti-nuclear stuff, E.P. Thompson. And the one that I did not get an invitation from, in fact, he said no, was Eric Hobsbawm. <laughs> and, I, and, and I actually have the letter because he tried to deny he said it when we became <laughs> friends. The letter said, well, you should treat me like, you know, you, want, you, want, you don't want to have your subject moving about or for, you know, you should treat me like Frederick Jackson Turner. Yeah. Basically, you should treat me as dead, you know. <laughs> And, I, and he didn't use the word dead, but he implied that pretty effectively. And then later, he actually contacted me because Victor Kierner and George Rude said to him, you've got to be talking to Harvey K, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we became friends all the way through then. And, and when he came to visit, he came here to talk to my students. We had a really great time. I was talking about the conversations we had. I said to him, you do realize what you told me originally? He said, no, I didn't. And I pulled out the letter. And he said, oh, I guess nice. I did. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well done, Harveen. Thank you for your good work here. Always a pleasure. Now, listen, the real pleasure is always mine because you guys, I, you know, it's funny. People don't realize we've never actually met in a room face to face, but you guys are great. Thank you. And you are the grand champion, the the, the most uh, frequent guests of Left Anchor. It's, it's, uh, it's a privilege to have you on so many times. I got to write another book. Yeah. <laughs> More Hobbs Rob Get on content, it. Get on please. it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for living, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye bye.